0: Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from AboutMeditation.com. My name is Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm super excited to share my interview with meditation teacher, Juliana Ray. Juliana has a great story. She was an up-and-coming recording artist who was critically acclaimed in opening for acts like Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac and Don Henley. She's a gifted singer songwriter but as sometimes happens in the music industry things didn't work out according to plan and it's a really interesting story how juliana ended up as a teacher of mindfulness working with high performing individuals athletes musicians and executives she teaches something called basic mindfulness Which is the subject of studies at Harvard, the University of Vermont, Carnegie Mellon, and other research institutions. So, today we hear her amazing story, and then we really go deeply into both basic mindfulness what it is, how you practice it, and how she applies that modality with her clients, how she coaches them in the practice of basic mindfulness. It's super interesting. You're going to pick up a lot of tips, and you will be able to tell. I thoroughly enjoyed this interview, and I think you will too. So let's jump in. Juliana, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you, Morgan.
0: Awesome. So I think we can dive right in. I love to start with asking people about their story. Can you, can you tell us your story? How why and and when did you start meditating? How did you come to meditation and and what really compelled you to learn and start your practice?
1: Absolutely. So about 20 years ago, I uh, I was in therapy. I was really really struggling at that point. I had had a record deal on a major label. I was on Warner Brothers. I had released a solo record and was living my dream really. Yeah. Being an artist and um, you know, uh, it had been an extraordinary kind of catapulting into the stratosphere in terms of, uh, being able to make my passion, my living. And then the label didn't hear a single, <laughs> which basically means they didn't know how to promote it. And two years later I was waitressing again. And oh my God. Yeah. So, which is, you know, in this town, it's quite a common story, mm. um, but when you're going through it and you're getting all the great press and the praise, and you you kind of have the sense that okay, this is gonna this is the beginning of something, and then when that drops away and suddenly you're you take in a, a huge step back and you're doing something you had hoped and imagined you would never have to do again, it's very unsettling, right? Yeah. And I did not have the skills to manage it well, and I had actually. Even before I got my great opportunity, I struggled with anxiety and depression. So when this happened, I plummeted back into anxiety and depression and I was yeah. in, in therapy and I was trying medication and I w- was trying everything to take care of it and I nothing was quite working and I was really at a loss for what yeah. to do. And I, I saw myself progressively getting worse over the years. I didn't know how I would ever kind of pull myself out of that. It just seemed that uh, things were going to get harder and not easier, and I didn't know what to do about that. So my therapist suggested, and medication wasn't a good solution for me. I didn't respond well to it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I fortunately or unfortunately, I I just uh, my body chemistry didn't like it, and so that wasn't an option. My therapist suggested meditating, and I of course I I was a real pragmatist. I was never a spiritual seeker or anything like that. And when she said it, I thought, okay, sure. <laughs> It'll- yeah. Maybe it'll help me relax, and I'll try anything. If this can help me, it's something I can do for free, it's something I can do whenever I want to, I'll give it a try. So I was pretty skeptical about what it could do to really change my life, but Mm -hmm. I was willing to check it out because – it was something, there was a convenience level to it, and there was a kind of a self-empowerment about it, that it was something I could do for myself. I liked that. So I thought, well, I'll give it a few months. I recognized that it was going to be subtle, probably, and so I probably should give it some time. And I gave it a few months, and I wasn't quite sure what it was doing. It wasn't clearly addressing my anxiety in a very direct way the way I imagined it would. Yeah. So I, but I liked what it was doing. I felt more grounded. I had some psychological insights as I would sit there that uh, that were meaningful to me and helpful to me. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to stick with this. I like it. I'm not quite sure what it's doing, but I'll just keep doing it. And I did that for about two years, practicing every day for half an hour, having only had five minutes of instruction.
0: <laughs> wow. All right, Juliana, that's I was just about to ask you, what was the instruction you had? like So for those two years in particular, what were you doing?
1: I was focusing on my breath at the tip of the nose, Mm. noticing it move in and out. So a basic shamatha practice, uh, which is a basic, that just means a a practice emphasizing uh, concentration and restfulness. Mm. And I was uh, doing a loving kindness practice. I was Sending love to myself, to someone I care about, to someone neutral, and then to someone I found challenging. Mm. So that was it, and I just started hung around and did that for two years. I liked what it was doing. I didn't totally understand it. My paradigm for understanding the world was psychology, and so meditation. I just it was a fringe thing for me, but I thought it's it's doing something I like, so I'll stick with it. About two years in, I started to have what I would call more physiological experiences, subtle things. I noticed, wow, at the end of my exhale, there's this, there's this kind of delicious spaciousness. I don't know what that is, you know, but it's tangible. And I'd like to understand why that's happening and what that is. Things like that are one time I sat down and I felt like I was upside down. I felt, felt disoriented and it wasn't something that, it didn't seem that I was imagining it. It seemed literally like I, my orientation in that moment, had changed.
0: Wow. That is wild. <laughs> I mean, I know yeah. you can have, that's a thing, right? You can have any experience in meditation. <laughs> but that, well, I've he, never heard that. That's very interesting. Oh, uh,
1: really? Yeah. Well, so for me, this was the beginning of weird experiences. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> just the beginning. But I guess I look at all those experiences as just pointing to the same basic truth, you know, just pointing to the same principle. At work, which we can talk about later. But so I started out these experiences. I had no context for them. I hadn't really done any reading or, right. you know, I wasn't like I said, I wasn't a seeker. So at that point, I thought, you know, I need a teacher. But I also knew I'm a pragmatist. If I get the wrong kind of teacher... If someone talks to me about chakras, you know, if someone had talked to me about chakras back then, I just would have run screaming out of the building. You know, I yeah. I I, I wouldn't have responded well and I ran the risk of throwing out the baby with the bathwater and stopping meditation. If I got into a crowd that I found too like woo-woo, what I considered too, you know, airy or floaty or flaky, what you know, I I was scared. Yeah that, that I might encounter people who We're so fringe that I just gave it all up. So I thought, I'm just going to wait and see what comes up. And fortunately, just a couple of months later, a friend's dad introduced me to someone who is now still my teacher, a guy named Shinzen Young. And I immediately liked him because even though he talked about weird stuff sometimes, (laughs) um, he did it in a way that it just all most of what he talked about just sounded perfectly logical to me. And I immediately, I just thought, wow, this is so practical. It's so pragmatic. That's when I started practicing mindfulness intensively. He's a mindfulness trainer. And Mm -hmm. I went on my first retreat at that point. And it was that retreat that showed me the potential of practice. And at that point, there was no turning back.
0: So with that retreat, was it like, was it a silent retreat? How long was it? Like, Yeah. yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the retreat experience
1: yeah, it was a silent retreat. It was a week long. And I had at that point been practicing half an hour a day. So I could not imagine how I was going to get through a week. But I was actually at a really pivotal moment. I was at kind of a really dark point emotionally. And I thought, you know, I've got nothing to lose. I, I'm, I'm just going to give this a try. So I dove in, I did the week. I, you know, the sits were optional. He's, he sort of customized his retreats to be User friendly for Westerners who may not be familiar with the retreat experience. So, mm. um, so that was kind. Yeah. But I just, I decided like you know, I'm just gonna sit every sit so I can get the most out of this I can. Yeah. And um, about midway through, I had a profound experience that showed me the potential of practice. showed me just how powerful and resilient the mind and body are. And the fact that I could train myself into a better state of being, a better kind of stasis for, you know, it's like we we have these experiences. Some of them make us feel great. Some of them, you know, feel we feel terrible about. And then we kind of revert back to our stasis, right? The, yeah. the foundation, the baseline. And I recognized, oh, if I keep doing this practice, I can elevate that baseline so that I'm starting from a better position. Uh, and then if things get bad, I'll know how to work with them so I can keep elevating that baseline.
0: That's cool. All right. So you had this experience in the middle of the retreat. What was the experience that yeah. opened opened this kind of vision or right. this insight for you?
1: Well, I had an extremely intimate encounter with a radish.
0: Oh yeah. (laughs) The radish. (laughs) That's That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, The radish showed me the secrets of the universe. I I basically, I'm sitting there eating a salad on the, it was about the Wednesday, I guess the retreat started on the Monday. So it was a few days in, Yeah. sitting and eating this radish and I'm chewing on it and I'm really paying attention to the sensations, uh, the taste of the radish and The, you know, radishes have a little bit of a tingly and a a heat thing going on. Yeah. So I started tracking the tingling and the heat. And the more I tracked the tingling and the heat, the more I got immersed in this tingling and this heat. And it just became more and more uh, like a pleasant buzzing energy. I noticed that as I focused on it, it expanded in my attention and it moved through my body. And so I started, it started in the jaw and I tracked it and it moved and it moved and it moved up through my head. And the next thing I knew, I had this geyser of, you know, what, what felt to me like ecstatic bliss Mm -hmm. shooting out the top of my head. My mind was totally blown on all levels. I I just couldn't believe that focusing on this radish could make me feel so good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. it sounds like, that was a bit of a portal for you or a gateway.
1: It really was. It it showed me, well, the main thing it showed me was, wow, my body is capable of feeling much better than I imagine it is. In yeah. Other words, you know, I'm used to walking around in the world feeling a lot of anxiety and depression and having that be sort of the way I, you know, what I operate from this kind of unhappiness and the discomforts in the body and the, the general malaise, you know, um, yeah. that I was struggling with. And when I had that experience, I thought, you know, th- I haven't ingested anything. <laughs> you know, it's not like I took a drug. Yeah. It's, all I did was do some exercises for a few days and i'm ha- having this experience that means my body is a lot more resilient than i'm giving it credit for it means my body is capable of um feeling good in a way i never could have imagined i didn't realize i had the capacity to feel that good yeah so that was a big revelation for me and it made me realize oh i could i could persist i could just do these exercises you know these mental exercises more and more regularly and then i would get to experience that more and more frequently. And then over time, I could, you know basically rewire myself to know that that is that's normal, yeah. so that's yeah.
0: that's really interesting. I, I like the way that you described so there are a couple of things. One, I really like the way you described the sense of going through the world in that malaise and you kind of laid out all the different elements of that malaise. And then, to use your terms, that was kind of the previous stasis. That was a previous baseline. That's right. And then what the retreat did for you, it sounds like from what you're saying, is it provided suddenly this alternative reference point. That's right. S- suddenly, like some some portal opened up a gateway and you discovered, wait a second, there's this actually alternative, dramatically empowering that's Con- context. And I liked, I was going to ask you about the, the use of that word resiliency. And then yeah. you, you described it. I like it. Part of what I hear when you say the word resiliency is the body mind's natural capacity to yeah. reset at higher levels. And particularly the way you described, which I found very interesting through ongoing practice, really being able to lift your own center of gravity
1: Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. And um, if someone asked me like in one word, describe what the benefits of practice have been, I would use that word resilience because it just gives you bounce in yeah. terms of, it's not that challenges go away and it's not that, you know, you don't just sort of work through your conditioning until it's all gone. I had fantasies of that when I started. I thought like, oh, I'm just going to break through all my bad mental habits and I'll just be blissed out all the time and I'll just be a big love ball. Everybody (laughs) will, you know, Yeah. from a certain perspective, it kind of does do that. But from another perspective, it's a very long, slow process. But in the meanwhile, what's happening is that you're changing the things that catch you, the things that hook you, the things that drag you down become less and less sticky. They yeah. just don't linger. So, you know, what you said, and I remember three years in the uh, noticing a real shift around depression. I woke up one morning feeling that familiar wave that settled into me when, when I knew that I was about to go on a depressive jag. It was like, it would settle in, it was come rolling in. It was like a, foggy blanket of unhappiness and mm. and it would it would kind of settle in like the mist on the ocean it would just get sort of and i didn't know how long it would last it could last weeks once i felt that come on it seemed to come out of nowhere it could last for weeks it was awful so i woke up feeling that way and i dragged myself to the grocery store to pick up some stuff and i was in the grocery store and a woman smiled at me, like a cursory, you know, just the kind of smile you give someone as you pass them on the aisle. Nothing meaningful. Um, It was just your average smile uh, in the grocery store. But in that moment, my practice had reached a point where I was fully able to receive that smile. Mm. And as the smile hit me, literally, it was like the sun bursting through the fog and it penetrated that depressive fogginess that was so familiar to me. In that moment, it penetrated it so fully and completely that it lifted. The fog lifted and that depressive jag just went away. So it lasted a matter of hours instead of a matter of days and weeks. Wow. And, and that was my first indication that the practice was having a really profound effect on depression. I, I didn't even, you know, start it for that reason, but. Uh, yeah.
0: That's very powerful. So did you, in that moment or like around that time, did you connect the dots pretty quickly?
1: Oh yeah. When she smiled at me, it was a radical shift in my physiology. And I knew that prior to, you know, mind you, I had been doing, it was about by then three years of immersive training. So I'd been going on lots of retreats, but I knew very clearly that prior to Practice prior to mindfulness training, I would never, that would never have happened. I, it would never have had the impact on my physiology that it had.
0: That's awesome. That's a beautiful story. And so there's a couple follow up points that going a little bit back one, just so this relationship that we you were starting to tease out there a little bit, or that you, you kind of touched on, retreats can give us these powerful. I might use the word vertical experiences. They're like discontinuous. Suddenly something happens. There's a breakthrough.
1: Like a peak experience. Like
0: mean? a peak experience, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Um we'll call it the radish experience. Right. And <laughs> okay. you know, the you, radish
1: effect. That's the yeah. nice theme of a book
0: I'm feeling a Yeah. <laughs> so so you have the radish effect and what the radish effect is is and that, this is my experience on silent retreats too. You, the radish effect is usually you know, each retreat is its own kind of hero's journey in a certain way. Cause you yeah. always go through some sort of arc or apotheosis on a, on a yes. retreat. And then you always, there's certain, maybe they're not always as dramatic as right. the one, you know, you described, but you have a radish moment and it's like, there's insight and there's clarity and there's the sense of potential yes. and but I also, and, and to me, that's like one of the hallmarks It's of going on a silent retreat. It's one of the most important reasons is because it discloses or reveals really new opportunities, new directions for you to move forward. But then I also liked what you were hitting on is that it's not a given. You, you know, it actually takes work, consistent yes. practice. You know, you need to... Consistency is such an important part of that lifting your center of gravity to reach that potential that got revealed in the radish moment.
1: Well, absolutely. And recognizing too that when your practice is challenging, when it's difficult, when it's not coming easily, when you're struggling with it that's where the growth is. That's where Absolutely. the juice is. Yeah. So you, so you stop sort of getting so attached to these peak moments because you see the, the big picture. And yes, the peak moments are serving for a level of insight. And yes, also those moments where you're dragging yourself through your practice and, and struggling with it, those are also serving a, a really powerful and useful purpose. So, you know, it's Absolutely. All, yeah, that it's all grist for the mill, recognizing that.
0: Yeah, and often I guess my experience is like the peak moment isn't also to say this is how you're going to feel. It's more like, no, this is kind of the direction you need to go and in alignment with what you're saying. It's not also, for me it hasn't always been the suggestion that you're going to feel like Superman if you do this. It's more just like this is where your developmental journey lies. This is your opportunity for growth. And often it comes, you know, I think like you said, it comes through struggle. It comes through crisis often.
1: Yes. And I think too, that what, what you start to appreciate as your practice develops is that there is this pendulum swing that happens between what we're calling this peak experience and then the sort of solidifying, you know, getting back into solid self, separate world, that feelings, you know, the the challenges that come along with that, whether it's loneliness or alienation or, you know, whether you're in physical distress or whatever it may be that's making you feel solid and separate, that actually there is this pendulum swing happening all the time between the dissolving and, you know, the peak experience is really just a reflection of the dissolving away of that solidness and separateness, mm-hmm. and then and then the returning into solidness and separateness. And a mature practice is one in which we are willing. We're willing to flow all the way to that peak experience, and we're willing to flow all the way back to that solidness and separateness. And that really is the journey. That's the that's the endless journey that we're on. And as the more willing we are for that process, well then the deeper and more sustained the peak experiences become and the less sticky the the solid and separateness becomes. And so that's the journey. We're we're constantly willing for whatever is arising and that you know, we really develop no preference for being in either of those conditions, and that's that's a mature practice. I
0: agree. There's a great framework that kind of talks about this, and do you know Ken Wilber's work with Integral Theory?
1: Oh, you know, I know who he is, but I'm not familiar with the work.
0: When I was hearing you talk about that, the way he would frame it, he says there's waking up and there's growing up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah. And that's how yeah, that's I think. Yeah, that. and that's how I think about what you're saying. Is like, as we do practice, there's these moments of waking up, but there's the long term process of growing up. Exactly. That's and
1: so well said. Yeah,
0: and the and the and it's a process of gradual integration. That the high, the low. It's like our humanity includes all of that.
1: That's right. That's
0: it. So I I love that. I love what you're saying. Now you started going on these retreats. You had this experience and something really started to shift then you had that experience which was amazing breaking through the fog yeah so when did you get to the point that you decided all right this is really what i want to commit to you know when you decided i actually want to teach this i want to make it my life can you take us in there like what was the transformation that happened there
1: yeah, well the first step was I want to teach this and then much later it was I want to make this my life. Really early on, about 3 years in, I became interested in teaching. And that was because I felt like, you know, I knew I I'm a communicator by nature. I felt like I had a good grasp of, uh, you know, as much of a grasp as anyone can have, really. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. but you know, I felt like I'd be able to communicate the process in a way that would be useful and helpful to people. And I wanted to do that. It was, I was getting so much out of it. I knew that that was a way that I could share and contribute to Mm -hmm. people's lives. So that was about three years in and I started learning how to do that. And then really it was a few years back that a confluence of things happened. Number one, this industry of mindfulness emerged and it's still emerging really. And at a certain point, so you know, originally I was doing practice, and then I also got a deep into Zen training. Also, those are my two kind of mindfulness and Zen traditions that I mm. have practiced in. But basically, I was doing the training for personal healing. That was the primary focus of it. I'm doing this to to heal myself personally, and that was a long and continues to be a journey unfolding. It's a it's not as though I'm all healed up, but yeah. um. But at a certain point, there was a transition from, there was a point at which I just began feeling like good enough on a daily basis that I had more energy to give as a teacher and a trainer. So a shift happened over time where it was like, oh, I'm going to continue to work on myself, but actually I'm interested in making this the centerpiece of my life and offering it to people as what i offer and you know around that time too the music business has gone through huge changes you know yeah. as i mentioned i was a professional musician and i was just watching things change and realizing that it it wasn't going to be viable for me anymore and you know i was i was getting older as a woman and the industry was changing and honestly when i looked at the lifestyle of the touring musician it just didn't even appeal to me anymore so i was going through a, a transition around recognizing that that was something i no longer wanted to make the centerpiece of my life mm. at the same time that i was realizing that this practice had become the most meaningful part of my life it had its influence on everything because at the end of the day even if i had been a a pop star like you know touring the world as a doing, ex- playing exactly the kind of venues I wanted to play, and being exactly the kind of artist I wanted to be. If I hadn't done the inner work on myself, I would still have been wandering around the world miserable. Yeah. So, uh, so I recognized that that the practice had to come first for me, and that it was because it was so central to, because it impacted my life in such a profoundly positive way, I really wanted to share it with people so that maybe it could affect them as well. So Mm. that transition happened about, I would say three to five years ago.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I was wondering, I was wondering where the music career fit in the whole arc, but that answers it.
1: Yeah. I still make music and I still get profound satisfaction from creating music and recording music and performing. And I don't need to stop that. Yeah, Uh, It's just that I recognize that this practice has taken center stage. And so that's how that goes.
0: Are you a singer?
1: I am. I'm a singer and a songwriter.
0: Can we find your music online?
1: Oh, yeah. You All can right. go, there's a bunch of you know on iTunes and Pandora, and I think there may even be some stuff on Spotify, I'm not sure. But anyway, yeah, Juliana Ray.
0: All right, everybody, I will link to some stuff in the show notes so you can check out Juliana's stuff. I'm definitely going to check it out.
1: <laughs> awesome,
0: yeah. All right, so you teach a form of mindfulness called basic mindfulness. Can you share a little bit about that? What is it and why did you choose that modality?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, basic mindfulness was developed by this teacher, Shinzen Young, who I mentioned, and it was in R&D for about 40 years. (laughs) He's a, a, along with being, having been ordained as a Vajrayana monk in Japan, he is a Buddhist scholar. Hmm. Um, Early on, he realized that number one, he wanted to make contemplative practice accessible for people in the West. So he thought about how could I do that? And he noticed that, so even though he was ordained in the Vajrayana tradition, he noticed that the Vipassana folks seemed to really have a handle on what they were doing. (laughs) And, um, you know, he did a lot of Vipassana training himself as well as a lot of Zen training. And he just felt that mindfulness had the most to offer because it's rooted in Vipassana. So there's this kind of, deconstructing of your experience that has a certain logic and clarity to it that he felt that people would respond to it's a very diy practice it's something that you can
0: absolutely
1: learn and do on your own very well so he recognized the power of that but he also recognized that so a couple things number 1 is he wanted to take into account all the contemplative traditions Uh, of the world. He wanted to help people recognize that actually whatever practice you're doing, whatever meditation you're doing, if you break it down, it comes down to developing a certain skill set. There's a consistency, whether you're focusing on your breath, whether you're doing a mantra, whatever it is that you're doing, if you get right down to it, you're developing a specific set of skills. So he designed it to be comprehensive, to cover all traditions. He designed it to be good for practice in action so that you could bring practice from the cushion into your daily life more easily. Mm -hmm. It can be you know, hard for example, to do a mantra and be in a conversation. (laughs) However, you can be in a conversation and also be practicing basic mindfulness. So there's some real power in having a set of strategies and techniques that you can take beyond the cushion. And then the third thought he had in mind when he was conceiving it is this connection with science. He actually, he anticipated that things would go as they've gone. In other words, in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of scientific research around the benefits of meditation, and that's part of why it's gone mainstream now. That's the, sort of the tipping point. Is, oh yeah, yeah. So we're getting all this great feedback from mainstream science. It's no longer like the hippy dippy science. It's the it's the real. It's the Harvards and you know yeah. Carnegie Mellon, and so he anticipated that, and so he set up the system in a way that would be easy for science to track and monitor. And so as a result, he's partnered with Harvard and Carnegie Mellon and University of Vermont and a few other places and you know, they're getting great results because of the way the system is designed. It's designed for easy study. So yeah, so that's a a lot of care went into considering how to design this training both in terms of user experience and in terms of its relationship to science, and connecting the dots between all contemplative paths. So I'm in deep gratitude to Shinzhen for having devoted his life to conceiving of it. And so yeah. I'm, I'm honored to now uh, translate it into various forms for people to learn.
0: Yeah, I feel like people like you and me are indebted to folks like the in- Insight meditation society Zhen yang to a lot of these really first generation folks who absolutely have translated a lot of these Eastern practices into modalities that we can assimilate here in the West and you know really they apply more easily than say the original traditional modalities they're they're better for Western sensibilities
1: absolutely absolutely yep by all means. And that's what we want. We want, it's challenging enough. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. So. Well, that's, that's really great to hear. And also you express tremendous confidence in it. So that's very inspiring just in and of itself and compels me to want to learn more about basic mindfulness.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny that going on the Zen retreats was a very interesting contrast because this Zen style was Rinzai, and, which is a totally different approach to practice. And the Zen style is really boot camp. It's super intense and very rigorous. And you might assume, therefore, that you're going to kind of get more bang for your buck, or at least I did. That's the way my mind thinks. Like, how can I, because it's a long process. How Anything to kind of shortcut and anything to compress the learning curve is welcome. So I, I sort of had this assumption, well, I'll, the Zen training, it's boot camp, and so maybe there'll be a faster growth curve. But I found both the mindfulness and Zen retreats to be equally yielding that same core insight. I didn't, it wasn't like I found myself thinking, oh, this path is better than that path. Mm -hmm. They both, they both really worked well for me.
0: That's cool. So can you give us some examples of then how you work with people in the context of basic mindfulness? What are some of the issues that you're, you're working with people on and how mindfulness helps?
1: Absolutely. It varies. Uh, I do one-on-one coaching and I also do like group trainings, corporate trainings, and you definitely have to read the level of experience of the person that you're working with, but then also be open to surprises you know, one of the fun things about coaching people one-on-one and especially with this system, so you get familiar with them and then you get familiar with whatever challenges they might be facing. So for example, let's say it's a manager who has a whole lot of calls to make to his sales team and maybe he doesn't know quite how to manage all the varying emotions of his sales team, right? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's going to be a hotbed of emotion right there.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So working with him to develop the skills so that he can enter into any situation like that and be able to have more emotional intelligence, um, have more empathy and connection, be able to regulate his own emotional life. So that would be like a typical challenge that a client might face. I had another client who was training for an Ironman. We would actually do some calls while he was working out. So while he was on the bike or while he was uh, running, we would do the calls, and that way, he began to integrate the training into his into the activity, and that helped him conserve his energy, which is crucial when you're doing something as Intensive as an Ironman. Yeah. Every, every second counts and We tend to diffuse our energy in unproductive thoughts. Uh, We get caught in self-doubt at moments when things get really physically challenging. Knowing how to work with that and also knowing how to work with the physical intensity in a way that helps it dissolve, that helps it, that frees up your energy was really essential. And he attributed his ability to complete the Ironman to the, the mindfulness training. But more than that, he actually in perspective said, you know, I feel like the Iron Man was just a great opportunity to expose me to mindfulness. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. So a lot of times people get into it with these challenges and they're like, oh It's going to help me with this challenge, right? It's going to help me talk to my sales team better. It's going to help me manage this, you know, get through this Ironman better. It's going to help me with a fight I just got into with a friend or a girlfriend or whatever. We look at it as a tool to help us with these particular challenges. But, you know, at a certain point, there can be a complete paradigm shift where you Look at the challenges as an opportunity to practice the <laughs> the the mindfulness. You know, yeah. you start to see it all from a different perspective. So
0: that's cool, Juliana. I wanted to ask, like, so when you're, let's take the example of the gentleman who's the sales uh, manager. Yeah. When you're working with him and kind of training him to develop his mindfulness capacities to become more emotionally intelligent. What does that look like? How are you working with him?
1: Right. The way basic mindfulness breaks down our sense experience, it's just super simple into three categories, see, hear, and feel. And see consists of like both what you see in your environment, right? And then- inner seeing, in other words, what you see w- when you're imagining or daydreaming or anytime your mind goes to a thought, there's going to be a visual component to it. Yeah. So, so see covers that whole inner outer thing. Same thing with here. You're hearing your environment, but then there's also maybe you're hearing yourself talk to yourself or you're hearing tunes stuck in your head, that kind mm. of thing. And with feel, it covers both physical type sensations as well as emotional your emotional life, we, uh, some people or many people, this, just the idea that you feel emotions in the body is a whole new concept. So sometimes it's a matter of helping them discover that, yes, in fact, emotions happen in the body and you can detect them. And often they happen sort of most strongly in the same location typically the solar plexus or the heart or the mm. throat people have like what we'd call hot spots of so places where you tend to notice emotions so Mindfulness is developing, discovering a relationship with your sense, with your sensory experience, right? Yeah. So you are beginning to detect, oh, okay, so, ah, uh, yeah, right. I, I notice when I feel strongly, it happens in the solar plexus. Huh, I didn't know that about myself. Now I know hmm. that there's this place where emotions tend to happen strongly. And actually, then while I'm in conversation with someone, I can potentially I can split my attention. I can listen to what they're saying, but I can also be paying attention to the emotions that are happening in my body. And that will help me regulate. That'll help me be aware of what's happening so it doesn't spill into unproductive actions or behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, That'll help me process my experience more efficiently. So what you're doing is you're bringing these three skills of mindfulness practice into focusing on your emotional life. And the three skills are concentration power. You're choosing to attend to your emotional life Mm -hmm. um, and you're making that your focus. And if your attention drifts, you're bringing it back to that experience of your emotional life you're developing sensory clarity. So you're becoming clear about your moment by moment experience of your emotions, right? Maybe, maybe becoming clear about, oh, now I'm feeling anger. Oh, now there's fear going on. Oh, there's some combination of anger and fear. Oh, it's at this level of intensity. So you might not be able to have that level of clarity when you're in conversation with someone. So you wouldn't necessarily start. That's kind of an advanced practice, but you might start simply by developing a mindful relationship with your emotional life by concentrating on it, becoming clear about your moment-by-moment experience emotionally, and then also bringing what's called equanimity to it. And that means that you're not fighting with it. You're not pushing or pulling on it. For example, trying to push anger away because you think it's bad Or getting attached to joy because you think it's good. So you're doing your best to kind of suspend judgment about whatever emotions are coming up. And you're also doing your best to not resist or cling to whatever emotions are coming up.
0: That's very comprehensive.
1: Yeah. So basically what the system allows you to do is say, yeah, I can work broadly and I can I can do this with all my experience, seeing, hearing, feeling, or I can work narrowly and I can just focus on emotions. But I bring these skills of concentration, clarity and equanimity to the experience of my emotional life. And really then the emotion becomes, you know, what you're using a mantra for. If you practice a mantra, you're really practicing it to develop those three skills of concentration, clarity, and equanimity. If you focus on your breath, same thing. So if you bring your attention to your emotions, you're doing it to develop those three skills.
0: So when you're working with someone like the sales manager, it's probably a pretty dynamic experience. You're probably... I imagine yeah. you introduce them to the ideas, but then you just start, do you just start to help ground in the body and you start to feel, yeah, yeah how does so that work?
1: There are three ways that we work when we're training, when we're coaching, um, and it depends on the individual and it depends on the session, sort of what what's going to make the most sense for that session. Sometimes it's more of a training session where we'll do some guided practice or I'll have him, for example, label his emotions out loud if he's working. Um, And then we'll do a window of feedback and reports where he'll sort of give me input about his experience. And based on that, we might refine where we take the practice. So there's that whole training thing, which is you're really refining a person's skillfulness with their attention. The same way that you might train a violinist, like a teacher might train a violinist. It's the same kind of thing, only in this case, the instrument is attention. So we're refining his skillfulness with attention, focusing on whatever in that moment is presenting itself as best to work with. In other words, it's like, oh, there's something interesting going on here, or this is challenging dealing with right now. Right. I can deal with that. So that's the training part. The other part is conceptual. Where yeah, there's a lot of there's ideas to get under your finger, and there's also the link to make between what what's the connection between focusing on my sensory experience and the stuff that happens in my daily life. I don't always necessarily you know people don't always necessarily see the connection, so I'm bridging that gap of understanding between look, being able to do this practice helps you. Carry through in these various ways in your life, and they begin to recognize it for themselves. For example, they might share, you know, something different is happening in my relationship with my mom. I noticed that I just related to her differently, and I think it's from the practice. And so then we'll draw out what exactly it is that has shifted for them in their relationship so that they start to bridge that gap. And then the third is strategizing like, okay, you've got this challenge at work. Here's the technique. Here's how you're going to apply the technique and we'll practice it or we'll plan for it. So, um, okay, you've got the Iron Man coming up. Let's do a whole map of the day where every moment is accounted for with some kind of mindfulness strategy so you don't ever have to think or be concerned. We've ritualized the whole day with a mindfulness strategy so you don't have to think or be concerned about decision-making. You know what to do at any given time and that'll conserve your energy, things mm-hmm. like
0: that. Awesome. Thank you for taking us in like that.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: What would you say, now just kind of pulling back more generally, what would you say is the number one issue or challenge that your clients have with meditation?
1: Mm, That's good. Well, coaching clients really have an advantage because an accountability partner really helps shore you up and make your practice consistent. Mm Mm-hmm when you're doing group work where there's less accountability or when you're just trying to do it on your own, I would say the biggest challenge people have is making it consistent, doing it consistently. And I think part of that is purely the psychological habit of it, developing that psychological habit. I also think it's because the rewards of practice come and go and often people will you know, they'll enjoy it when it's rewarding, but if it starts to get frustrating, they won't necessarily have clarity about how to work with it. So, so I think clarity is very empowering in terms of helping people over the hump of getting into consistent training. So yeah, I would say consistency is a big thing. That's sort of the biggest. Yeah. Wouldn't you say?
0: Absolutely. It's the number one issue people write to me about on the website and, yeah, Part of the reason I'm asking the next question has to do with habits is I'm publishing a book this fall called The Meditation Habit. Great. And it's all about dealing with this one issue. How do you make meditation a habit and really just grounding that whole process in the science? Yep. So because there's all this incredible science coming out, as you well know, and then also some very powerful books all about habituation and how the brain is oriented towards habituation and that you can really, you can harness that.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So I wanted to ask you in that context, do you work with people to try and help them turn meditation into a daily habit? And if so, what do you find has been effective in helping it stick?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I I always do, and that's whether I'm working with groups online, uh, in person, coaching. That's a huge issue, as you mentioned, for everybody. So yeah. accountability is a huge piece of it. In other words, having a community or having a partner in it, whatever you can do to be accountable about your practice, prioritizing it. It sounds yeah. funny to say, but actually, we tend to give it a few minutes every few days and think that's gonna, you know, if you if you think about you. You've got to develop a passion for, for practice. Totally. I think another really important uh, aspect of developing a consistent practice is understanding why and what, you know, what you're doing and how to do it, I guess I should say. Um, yeah. Because uh, oftentimes there is this sense you sit there and if you don't have a lot of instruction, like even, you know, one of the reasons I'm motivated to teach people is that first two years... I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, and I really could have compressed the learning curve if I had access to a teacher sooner. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I would have made better progress. And I, it, it's not a bad thing, and I'm glad I stuck with it. But I see how I could have compressed that learning curve and developed better habits around how I practiced as well. Yeah. Um, for example, I think that it's really key early on in your practice to start to try to do it in action, not just to do it sitting. Because if we only do it, you know, formal practice, what I would call formal practice where you're sitting in a posture, then oftentimes that kind of separates it from our lives. And so I think it's a good idea to develop early on habits that are, because you don't even realize how, I find it challenging to practice in action because for the first few years, I didn't, you know. Yeah. So I think it's important to do that also because you may find more joy in practicing if you do that. If you practice while you exercise, for example, you may get more of a pleasant biofeedback by, by, you know, when you stop exercising and you feel the endorphins after, you're going to feel those endorphins more fully because of bringing mindfulness to it. So...
0: No question.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a
0: positive, it's an incredible positive feedback, Luke. When you're, yeah, yeah, Yeah. go ahead.
1: Yeah. And it saves time too. So for those people who are like, oh no, I don't have time. I don't have time. It's a great way to kill that excuse.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. And the more grounded you are, the more the illusion of no time, which I think comes a lot from the sense of just being stressed. Yeah. That starts to fade and you realize, wait a second, in, in the present moment, you're not you don't feel that you don't have time. You feel you have time. It's That's the right. opposite.
1: That's right. Exactly. So, yes, uh, we, we begin to put less pressure on ourselves on a regular basis, and that can't help but have a positive effect. So, yeah, the so I would say that there is um, – Getting creative with your practice is what I would call that. Um, making, mm-hmm. taking ownership of it, noticing what interests you, what will motivate you, engaging, you know, making it your practice, getting clear about what practice is really doing, what it's trained, what are the skills you're developing? Why are you developing those skills? How do you develop those skills? And also then all the tricks like setting an alarm, to do your practice, you know, the practical tricks The you know, building it in as a part of your day on your calendar, things like that, where you have a level of accountability, whether it's to another human being or whether it's to yourself by building it into the structure of your day. Very cool. Yeah.
0: Those are, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say that's what I have to say about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, it's really good. I'm always interested to hear other instructors talk about this very topic because it is, I think the number one issue. Cause you don't, for the reasons you spoke to in the beginning, because of the media, because of the science, because it's gone mainstream, you don't have to work to convince people anymore that this is a good idea. It's more like, yeah, it's like, how do I knit this into my day? That's what really the issue is. I feel like, and
1: that's right. Making it sticky also rewards. Rewards are a great way. Totally. Yeah.
0: All right, so we're starting to get to the point of wrapping up the interview. We're going to take a slightly different tack here, and these are going to be a little quicker questions. What books have you read lately or movies have you seen lately that have inspired you and why? Let's see. It can be one or the other, or it doesn't have to be lately. It could just be what something that's had and one that's had a deep impact on you.
1: Yeah. I like to give this book healing back pain (laughs) Uh, because (laughs) it's it's kind of unexpected, but that $10 book like changed my life. And also, yeah, yeah. Healing back pain by John Sarno. When I first started doing immersive training, I developed a crippling back condition. Uh, It was excruciatingly painful. Wow. And and, uh, an MRI showed two herniated discs. And later from this book, two and a half years later, after really I was incapacitated, I realized that the, the practice of mindfulness, because I was going so immersive into it, getting so deep into it, it was bringing yeah. up a whole lot of stuff. And mm. I, my habit, my the way I had dealt with things in the past was to repress them, to cut right. them off. And of course, with mindfulness, you're opening up and you're turning towards your experience. So the new strategy was in conflict with the old strategy and it resulted in like a physical pain symptom that that was designed to distract me from the feelings that were coming up. So that book helped me figure it out and resolve the pain. And so whenever people talk to me about various pain symptoms, you know, often it's like I have these symptoms, but the doctors, they don't really see anything, but the pain is real but you may be surprised about the mechanism that's causing the pain. And this book helped me understand that. It's called Healing Back Pain. It also is relevant for people who struggle with stomach issues or headaches, that kind of thing. So I highly recommend it.
0: And did you go ahead and like get surgery or did you get worked on it? Or was did you deal with the pain through mindfulness?
1: Well, basically, uh, I was on the brink of surgery. I was doing a lot of mindfulness, but it wasn't really having an effect on the physical pain um, because what I discovered in this book is that if you focus on the physical pain, you are reinforcing it. You actually have to figure out what are the emotions that are being triggered, usually anger. What's, what are you angry about in your life that you're not, Admitting to yourself, basically, is how simple it gets. You just wouldn't believe the amount of excruciating pain your body will will feed you to get you to ask yourself that question. Wow. Uh, But yeah, so I tried epidural cortisone injections. I tried acupuncture, chiropractic, physical therapy. I tried everything. And I was looking at surgery. And I was going on lots of retreats. I was lying down on retreats because I couldn't sit because I was in too much pain. Hmm. Someone recommended this book and I was, you know, it was one of those, again, a case where I was just desperate enough and I had low expectations and I thought, all right, I'll give this a try. And I read the book and immediately identified with the kind of profile of a person who suffers with these kinds of, it's genuinely physical, it's excruciating, but it is the mechanism that's causing the physical pain is it's just a big surprise it's not what you would think and it helped me alleviate uh, you know relieve completely all the symptoms so that i was suffering with so brilliant ten dollars yeah that's
0: it's awesome <laughs> i'll put I, i'm linking that baby up in the show notes yeah because yeah a lot Best, of us have a lot of us have back pain
1: yeah that's ten dollars i ever spent
0: <laughs> uh, all right who's one of your heroes
1: I, you know, my teacher Shinzen Young for designing this training that I offer people. I, I am very impressed with his devotion to training, his ethics and morality, his values. That he's he's the whole picture. You know that he's really uh, using all of himself to be of service in the world. So I really uh, admire that in him. tremendously. yeah. yeah.
0: Can you give? Maybe some parting words of wisdom or advice to folks who are listening who may be new to meditation or they're aspiring meditators and struggling to get their practice off the ground or they're, they're just starting.
1: Yeah, a couple of things. One, notice what interests you. Notice what, you know, it's like, feel free to sample the buffet of styles if you want to. Don't assume that if you try something, you know, like some people don't like to focus on the breath. <laughs> so if, if you try something and it doesn't work for you, don't assume that you're the problem. Find something that you'll respond to that you resonate with. And that interests you, and that will keep you engaged in practicing, and make it yours. Make make the practice yours. It's and everybody has a messy mind <laughs> when we yeah when we when we stop and look inside, it can be horrifying. <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh, and I just want to let you know that guess what? We all have messy minds that we're kind of embarrassed by.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> that couldn't be more true.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's okay. You're just learning some tools to help you navigate it and free yourself from that a bit. And so basically I'm saying be kind to yourself, be gentle with yourself, and uh, and be true to yourself. Find what works for you, investigate it, give it a chance to work. It's going to get uncomfortable, so it's okay to get a bit uncomfortable as you practice. And trust your instincts. Find teachers that you really resonate with. And definitely do your best not to judge yourself for how well you're practicing. All right. Let go of that.
0: That's great advice. Thank you. Yeah. So where, yeah, awesome. So where can people learn more about your work and connect with you directly? And is there anything up and coming for you on the horizon that you'd like to share?
1: Mm, Yeah. People, if they want to check out kind of my style, the basic mindfulness approach, you can go to... FreeMeditationLesson.com. It's pretty straightforward. FreeMeditationLesson.com. If you're interested in coaching, you can go to PopGoZen.com. P-O-P-G-O-Z-E-N.com. I believe we're going to be launching like a monthly program on our website, so that'll be a good accountability community, an online accountability community. So that's something that's coming up. Uh, I think pretty soon, like within the next month or so. That's something to look forward to. Yeah.
0: That's great. So everyone, I am going to link all of these up in the show notes and also some of the earlier references that we made in the show. Juliana, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure, Morgan. It's so fun to uh, share this with a, a fellow practitioner and the immersive training stuff is so powerful and it's fun to be able to go there with you.
0: Absolutely. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Juliana Ray. If you want to follow up with Juliana directly, I've included a bunch of links in the show notes. You can pick those up over at www.onemind.com. That's www.onemind.com. Today I want to thank the two people most responsible for making this show possible. My business partner, Tom Bershad, and my wife of 11 years, Atra Nosrat. Without them, there is no One Mind Meditation podcast. I owe them a deep debt of gratitude for supporting the show. They are awesome. And until we are a sustainable business. This and every show is technically and literally sponsored by them. And if you do enjoy the show, you can help me out by leaving me a rating and a review over on iTunes. Your feedback, it's always helpful. I really appreciate it. And to be honest, those ratings and reviews, they are the best way to help other people find the show. If you Want to show us some love? That's the best way to do it. That or, of course, buy one of our fantastic meditation courses over at aboutmeditation.com. And finally, let's end with a quote. Today's quote is from Juliana's teacher, Shinzen Yang And he says, The ultimate expression of meditation comes when we can feel all the pains of the world, experience them with mindfulness and equanimity so they dissolve into energy and then recolor that energy and radiate it out as unconditional love, moment by moment through every pore of our being.